Well, good morning. And Happy New Year to all of you. I have a question for you this morning as we start out. Does God's grace extend to murderous, necrophiliac, cannibal pedophiles? That's the question that was put to Pastor Roy Ratcliffe when a Christian woman named Mary Mott asked him to go to Columbia Correctional Institute and meet with Jeffrey Dahmer in 1994. Mott had just watched a television interview with Dahmer where he said he wished he could find inner peace. And so Miss Mott wrote him and sent him several Bible studies of which Dahmer immediately completed them all and wrote back asking for more. It was at that point that she reached out to an area pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe and asked him to go and meet one-on-one with Jeffrey Dahmer. Ratcliffe agreed to go, and they studied the Bible together. He answered Dahmer's questions, and Ratcliffe tells of Dahmer's full decision to become a follower of Jesus in his book, Dark Journey, Deep Faith, Jeffrey Dahmer's Story of Faith. It was only a few months later later that Jeffrey Dahmer's life was taken by another inmate. But because of Ratcliffe's willingness to meet with him, as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven with Jesus today. How would you respond? Do you believe God's grace is big enough to wash the sin-stained hands of a criminal as heinous as Jeffrey Dahmer? According to Roy Ratcliffe, if you said no, you wouldn't be alone but you would be in direct opposition to the truth of God's word. You see, we as humans have an insatiable desire to compare, don't we? We say things like, well, I may have a temper, but have you seen that, Dad? Or our marriage isn't great, but at least it's not like theirs. As a youth pastor, I had a student who used to say to me, in jest, mind you, but in jest, she said all the time, Jason, I could be doing drugs. Now, thankfully, for Jeffrey Dahmer and others in desperate need of God's grace, you and I aren't the ones who get to decide who gets it and who doesn't. That lies in in our loving Heavenly Father's job. And he gives grace in untamed and unsanitized ways. But this word has become so commonplace to us. When we think about grace, we think about, well, I hope my partner will have grace for the amount of money I just spent on these things we don't really need. And when we say that, what we really mean is forgiveness without consequences. Or maybe when you think about grace, you think about a prayer you pray before a meal like this one. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Bethany's 80th Christmas, I think she should lead us in the saying of grace. What, dear? Grace! Grace, she passed away 30 years ago. They want you to say grace. 
the blessing. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. 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 It's just a classic. You got to show it, right? Or maybe you believe God's grace is just for people who help themselves. George Barna did a poll, and 81% of people who attend church, so think about, look down the row you're sitting in, that means 8 out of 10 pretty much of the people you're sitting in the row with, believe this is a verse in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. It's nowhere in the Bible. It is found in the Quran but it's nowhere in the truth of Scripture, and it doesn't sound anything like Luke's description of Jesus in Luke 19.10, when he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Grace that came to seek the lost looks a lot like chasing down prostitutes, embracing and defending adulterers, Loving the unlovable and welcoming those who nobody else does. You see, but grace is not simply something God does. Grace is at its core who God is. Listen to the words of Exodus 34 as God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, we see this description used of God. And in the Old and the New Testament, there are two different words that describe God's grace. I, want to, I think it's important enough that we unpack these so we understand exactly what it is we're talking about when we talk about grace. In the Old Testament, or in Hebrew, the word is hen. I'm a little sick, or it's got a little more phlegmy to it, but I'm afraid what would come out for the front row. So it's hen, delightful or favorable. And when this word is used to describe a gift, it's a gift of favor or a gift that is undeserved. Now, there's an Old Testament story about two brothers. It's found in Genesis chapter 25 through 33, if you want to go read it today on your own, or I'm going to summarize it for you now if you don't know it. It's brothers Esau and Jacob, right? Their dad's Isaac, their mom's Rebecca. And so Jacob is a deceiver. He deceives people, lies to people all throughout his life. But maybe one of his biggest acts of deceit are he deceives his dad with the help of his mom, How'd you like this? This is a mom who really honestly plays favorites, for those of you who think your parents do, but they don't. This mom, like, helps the youngest kid steal the oldest brother's birthright. And we're like, yeah, big deal, Jason. What's that even mean? Right? Okay, let's start with the thing that it really means. It means a bigger part of the financial inheritance that Jacob is taking from Esau. 
It also means some power. It means reputation. It means all these things. And different than us now, it's not like Jacob can, or Isaac can give it to Jacob and be like, oh, I messed up and give it back to Esau. Once it's given in those times, it was given for good and you can't take it back. So Jacob has stolen what is rightfully his brother's. Now, all of us older siblings in the room can understand that that means there will be revenge. There will be consequences to this decision for you taking this. And so, Rebecca helps Jacob flee, and he goes to his uncle Laban's house where he stays for 20 years. And it's when he returns that he's afraid of what Esau is going to do. Because Esau has every right to take vengeance, up to and including death. And so here comes Jacob back. Jacob sends his wives and his servants, super brave guy, right? Hey, you go meet my angry older brother. It'll be awesome. It'll be a great first family meeting. Thanks, wife. It'll be awesome. And so he sends them all ahead. And Esau asked this question in Genesis 33. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob is asking Esau for a gift that he doesn't deserve. What Jacob deserves from Esau is revenge, vengeance, and anger, but he's asking that he would show him favor or hem. And we see this all throughout the pages of the Old Testament as God interacts with his people, that he reacts in grace, in him. And that might not be what you expect to hear about the Old Testament, because I think most of us think the Old Testament is like, wait, isn't that the angry God? Well, we'll come back to angry God in a minute and why we see it that way. But in the New Testament, the word that's used for grace is charis. And charis is that to which bestows or occasions pleasure, delight, or favorable regard. Now, I want you to understand, this word was a common word in the vocabulary of that day. They would have known charis because people would give gifts to other people all the time. And so it's this gift that brings favor or delight. But what Jesus does that turns it on its head and makes it so radical is Jesus gives it to people who are wholly undeserving and could never give this gift back. It's what Paul means in Ephesians 2.8, for God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Grace means there's absolutely nothing you or I can do to make God love us. Or make ourselves good enough to be worthy of his love. Paul knew this. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, But whatever I am now, it's all because God poured out his special favor, his charis, on me. And not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God working through me by his grace. That's the idea of this grace that Jesus gives to us. In his book, Scandalous Grace, which gives structure to a lot of what we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks, Preston Sprinkle says this, and I want to read it slow because I want 
it to sink in. Divine grace is God's relentless and loving pursuit of his enemies who are unthankful, unworthy, and unlovable. Grace is not God's ability to save sinners, but God's stubborn delight in his enemies. Grace means that despite our filth, despite the sewage running through our veins, despite our odd addiction to food, drink, sex, porn, pride, self, money, comfort, and success, God desires to transform us into real ingredients of divine happiness. I want to leave that on the screen for just a minute because I want to invite you to figure out where you fit in that statement. Where do you see yourself in God's grace? Do you believe that God is and would relentlessly pursue you? That you're worthy of God's pursuit? That there's nothing you have done or will do that will cause God to stop pursuing you? But he's chasing after you. Do you believe that at one time, if we're honest, or maybe you still are today, you are or were God's enemy. Would we ever use that word to describe ourselves? But that's the truth of what grace is. God is relentlessly pursuing, not us when we get cleaned up, but when we were his enemies. Do you believe God wants to set you free from your addiction? That he has the power to transform your life? You see, because here at Great Oaks, we value unimaginable transformation because Jesus loves us too much to let us stay the same. That is grace. But it's also grace that Jesus meets us with unassuming authenticity as we are, where we are, and requires nothing of us to come and meet him. And we hope that as you hang around Great Oaks for a while, that that's the way you feel welcomed in with unassuming authenticity. But we hope while you're here, you meet a Jesus who will lead to unimaginable transformation in your life and ours. All right, we've covered a lot of ground so far this morning. I know this is kind of a dense one. You're like, wow, welcome to 2024. We're going to get a different style sermon. It's awesome. All right, so let's make sure we recap where we've been. God's grace is for all people, no matter how messed up we are, right? That's truth one. Truth two, God's grace is part of who he is, not what he does, okay? And Part three, you can go home and tell all your friends you can now speak three languages. You learned Hebrew and Greek this morning, and if you could speak English when you walked in the room, you're well on your way. It'll be fantastic. All right, so now where do we go from here? I want to come back to this idea that the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace. Because my guess is if I told you over the next five weeks we're going to talk about grace, most of you would be like, oh, this is going to be a sermon series on Jesus. 
right? We're just going to camp out in the Gospels. We're going to see Jesus all over the place. It's going to be grace-filled. It'll be great. We miss God's grace in the Old Testament because I think we misread the Old Testament. I spent a lot of time in youth and children's ministry fighting against this. We use the Old Testament as a list of stories that teach us good moral principles. We tell Bible stories to our kids oftentimes, like, go be strong like Samson. Be available like Esther. Be wise like Solomon. Be a leader like David. Be obedient like Noah. And there's a lot of problems with this approach. But maybe the biggest one is that we reduce these Bible stories about the character of God down to moral stories, and eventually when we reduce them to moral stories, our kids grow up and they read the rest of the Bible, or they hear the rest of the Bible and they're like, wait a minute, Samson was maybe strong, but he was also addicted to women and power. Solomon collected wives like I collect shoes. David, we're not even going to go there, too many to mention. Noah was a drunk. Esther broke more of God's laws than she ever kept and never once cried out for his help. And the string that holds all of these stories together is not the character of these men and women. It's the unmerited work of God's grace in their lives. So when we stop reading the Old Testament like a set of Aesop's fables we begin to see God's grace on every page. Let me show you what I mean. If you have your Bibles or your phones, go ahead, pull them out. We're going to dig into Genesis chapter 1, and we might as well just start at the beginning, right? And as you look there, I want you to think about this statement. Creation is God's first gift of grace. Creation is God's first gift of grace. Listen to the first verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I will defend passionately that these two verses may be some of the most significant verses in all of scripture because of what they teach us about the character and nature of God. But to fully understand, we've got to dig and do a little bit of work. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, this is welcome to Inside Jason's Brain, it's a scary place. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself, why did God create? Why? I mean, let's face it, it didn't turn out all that great. Why did he do it? The God who created needs nothing. He's self-sustaining. He existed just fine before creation existed. There was never a time when he was not. He's above all creation. He's beyond all creation. He's wholly outside of creation. And yet, this God speaks and galaxies fall into place. Stars are hung in the sky. It's at his whim that the land is formed. Rock formations break through the crust and form beautiful mountains. It's at his wish that waters bubble from underneath the surface and form oceans and rivers and lakes. But why? I'd say because it's his gift. It's his gift to us. We defined grace as something that is favorable and delightful. 
And if you would go back and read Genesis chapter 1, you'll see God describe creation in Genesis 3 through, in Genesis 1, 3 through 31 as good seven times. And it's for us. He created it as a gift for us, and it was a good creation. And what does this creation reveal about us? I think it reveals three important things about grace. This gift of creation reveals, one, that God is transcendent. That's what we mean when we say God is above all and over all and beyond all. This God is unknowable to us. Think about it. We would have no clue who God is if he didn't reveal himself to us in creation. We understand what we understand about him because of what we see about creation. Listen to the psalmist. These are words we don't often speak about God in our context. But Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does as he wishes. Why did God create? Because he wanted to. Because he can. Because he wanted to give you and I a gift. Because nobody tells this God who's above us and above creation what he's going to do. He's transcendent. I love Psalm 8, 3 through 4. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. If we allow ourselves to pause, to get away from light long enough and look up, I don't know how we look into the night sky, see the stars that are hung there and sustained there, and don't see an all-powerful God who sets it in place. But we have this high view of God in creation, but in Genesis chapter 2, it reveals that God is not only transcendent and distant, but that this God of grace is intimate. I don't know how you picture these things in your head, but it says that God piled up some dirt and formed man out of it. I picture God at the edge of the ocean where the tide's coming in. Maybe you think about God as a kid building a sandcastle. I don't think that's sacrilegious, but maybe. And he's gathering this dirt, and out of that he's forming bones. And he presses it together hard so that it forms a femur and a leg and then begins to knit together all of the little bones that form our feet and help our toes and our toes move in our feet and our fingers and our hands. And then he picks up more dirt and somehow he fashions that together and forms organs and places them exactly where they need to be behind those bones so they're protected He attaches a nervous system to them so we feel and experience pain. He runs blood vessels all the way through that will support life. Then he rolls out large pieces of dirt and drapes them over us and tucks it in so neatly, forming skin. And then like some cosmic EMT, he tilts Adam's head back. And he places his lips against Adam's lips and he breathes breath into man. The God who hung the galaxies in the sky has come close in intimate ways. His lips have touched the lips of man as breath and life come forth. 
And again, Psalms tells us he's done this time and time and time again, billions of times, as he knits each and every one of us together in a womb, forming us, fashioning us, making us. The God who is transcendent is also intimate. Why? As an act of grace. And the third thing we see here, we've learned that God is both transcendent and intimate, but the third thing we learn is our nature. I want you to listen to this in Genesis 1.27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. God didn't have to make us in his image. He didn't make anything else in his image. He chose to. He chose to reflect himself in each and every one of us to all of creation. The most true thing about you when you look in a mirror is that you reflect the image of God. What's that mean? That we reflect his image. We reflect it in our creativity. Look at all that God has created. Now, we can't create from nothing the way God did. But look at the technology, the industry, the advancements that we have made because of the creativity that is knit in us by our creators. We reflect him back. That creativity is a reflection of God's image in us. We also reflect God's image in our intrinsic moral character in the ways that we understand right and wrong. Now, you can train your dog. I'm sure you all have wonderfully trained dogs. I do not. My dog is a holy terror. But I'm sure you guys have much better trained dogs than I do. And they will do things. But I promise you, when your dog lays down at bed at night, it does not think about the moral choices it made throughout that day. It just is glad that it has a soft bed to lay in and it got treats. There's no moral thought about the right and wrong choices your dog made today, and yet we often find ourselves reflecting on those choices in our own lives. To be made in the image of God is to experience relationship with him. God's ultimate act of grace is that he comes down and he walks with Adam in the garden. Can you imagine? God didn't pull the grizzly bear over put his arm over the grizzly bear and be like, hey, let's name all the other animals in creation. It's just me and you. We'll do this. It'll be great. That's exactly what he does with Adam. He wants to be in relationship with him. He wants Adam to have purpose and dignity in all that he does. Creation is God's first gift of grace. And the communion that we have with that God is evidence of that. As we dig into this study of grace over the next couple of weeks, I want you to understand we don't deserve it. We did nothing to earn it. But God's grace, given in creation by a transcendent God who becomes personal and creates mankind in his image, 
is the beginning of this incredible gift. And the amazing thing is, the image of God is equally present in Jeffrey Dahmer's life as it has in yours and mine. Grace is scandalous. And the scandal of grace is that when God looks at Jeffrey Dahmer, he doesn't see anything different than he does when he looks at you and me. And so as we begin 2024, I believe and I hope we come to understand that believing in grace means meeting everyone with unassuming authenticity and introducing them to Jesus who can bring unimaginable transformation in their life. And my challenge for you and for myself is that this year, we would live every day like we believe in that kind of grace. Will you pray with me? God, your grace breaks all of our paradigms. It doesn't fit. How could you love someone like that? Because God, we want to compare. But God, the truth is, how could you love someone like me? Because of grace. Because of the unmerited favor that you have chosen to give to me and to each one of us. God, I thank you for the ways that you've encountered us when we weren't worthy, before we cleaned ourselves up, before we did anything to deserve it. You came and you met us. You sent your son to die for us so that we could experience grace. And God, I pray that as we live our lives, we would share that same grace with those we come in contact with. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we close up this morning, if you're here this morning and you're like, I've never heard about this kind of grace, I would love to talk to somebody. We'll have prayer workers on the side of the room and they would love to pray or talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I know I'm supposed to show grace to this person, but I'm not ready yet. We would love to pray and help you with that as well. And if you've experienced God's grace, one of the ways we respond to that is through giving of tithes and offerings. And so if you came to do that today, there's three ways you can do that on the screen. Again, this is for those who call Great Oaks home. If you're a guest with us, your presence is gift enough. And when you're ready, stand and join our worship team in song.